It's been a long time since anyone was put to death for committing a crime in Canada. Capital punishment was officially abolished here in 1976, although it had been effectively abolished by a series of commutations and moratoriums dating back to 1963. And the last executions in the Canadian justice system happened in 1962. But there was a time when capital punishment was a reality in this country. Most of those who met the hangman's noose were men, but there were some women who were handed the ultimate punishment. One of those women was Elizabeth Workman of Sarnia, and this is her story. In 1873, Elizabeth Workman was found guilty of the murder of her husband, James Workman. Shortly after, she was sentenced to her death by hanging at the Lambton County Jail. She was one of only 11 women ever given the death penalty in Canada. And what was strange about her case was that she was the first offender to be hanged despite the jury's plea for leniency. It was an injustice that still draws attention to this day, almost 150 years since her death. On this episode of the 519 Podcast, we find out exactly what happened during her trial and why she was hanged despite protests from her community. Elizabeth Workman, born Elizabeth Adam in uh, Scotland in 1826 in West Kilbride in Ayrshire, Scotland. Elizabeth married at the age of 26 to a man named James Workman, who was also born in West Kilbride. His age doesn't really show, but there's reference to anywhere from a 10 to 20 year age difference. She was younger than he was. And at the time she married him, he had a teenage daughter, a daughter who was born under the blanket, is the way the Scottish referred to it. He was born out of wedlock. And the woman involved, shamed at the time, left and the, the man raised the child anyway. By the time they came to Canada, the daughter was married, the daughter was already married, and they came over with the other couple and a young daughter named Catherine. They had a second child between them named Hugh, who was about nine years old. That's Bob McCarthy, who wrote a book on the Elizabeth Workman case called Case 666, Travesty of Justice. He also wrote a play about the case. The 1800s were often difficult for women. They had few rights, medical care was, by today's standard, primitive, and many women lived each day at the mercy of their husbands. It was a time in which it was usually the men that provided for their families. But in the Workman family, it was Elizabeth that played the majority of that role. Elizabeth Workman went out and worked doing various jobs, cleaning stores, doing laundry, etc., etc., to keep food on the table for herself and her son. The husband, James, from what I can read, apparently was, he was a butcher, but rarely did any butchering. He preferred to just wander around and drink and just be a naturally unhappy person to be around, we'll put it. Exactly how he behaved, we don't really know for sure. She was a woman of good moral character, and he was a person who was drunk and frequently abused his wife. James's alcoholism amplified his abusive behaviors towards Elizabeth far beyond the limits of his own home. 
It was no secret to their neighbors and others around the town that it was a problem, and it wasn't a surprise when it boiled over into a public exhibition that may have become the final straw for Elizabeth. Note that this was discussed using a term for a black person that would have been common in the 1870s, but is not used today. When the two barbers moved in town, and this was two Negro barbers moved into town, and they needed somebody to clean the shop and to do their laundry, and Elizabeth ended up doing that work for them. Somewhere along in 1872, about September, James Workman didn't really like the idea that his wife was over in the store doing floors and so on for the two Negro barbers, so he came to haul her home. She wouldn't go. There was an argument. He was pushed out the door by one of the two barbers. There was a few different perspectives on the event at the time, one of which was that one of the barbers, Samuel Butler, led James out the front door and James fell of his own accord. Another perspective was rooted in the racism of the time, stating that the barber pushed James against a wall, put his hand on his throat, and threatened him. Which one of these is true has never been confirmed. But the nature of the spectacle became important because it was the last time James was seen alive in public. The next time anyone saw him, he was dead in his bed with rope burns on his wrist and ankles. The cause of death was found to be blunt force trauma to the head. It was three or four days later that he died, uh, apparently with a couple of blows to the head and maybe other parts of the body. Blows that resembled the shape of a mop handle, we found out later. But nobody knows for sure because... He laid in his bed for probably a day to a day and a half dead before anybody came to officially look at him. The sheriff didn't know for a few days, but in the meantime, everybody in the neighborhood had wandered through. I guess it was a highlight of their day to get a look at a dead person. The sheriff came out, took Elizabeth Workman in, and took in one of the two barbers that I mentioned previously. They were both put in jail. That was about October of 1872. And they both stayed there until the following March. Now, at that time in Ontario, there was a traveling circuit judge type thing where they came two or three times a year and dealt with everything at one time. So by October, they'd missed them. So they had to wait that long, five or six months before they could have the trial. When the trial was held, and the transcript has testimony of several people in it, when the trial was held, they discovered just the day before that Elizabeth Workman did not have a lawyer. So the judge had to appoint a lawyer. And I imagine he wasn't too pleased with the idea because he didn't have time to prepare to defend her. The trial from the beginning was not set up in Elizabeth's favor. Being assigned a lawyer the night before the trial began wasn't a great start for her case, as it left no time to prepare. What also didn't help was having a judge come in from out of town with no prior knowledge of the community. A jury would be all men, no women at that time. A judge came in from Toronto. A judge who maybe be allowed his own opinion of women, and especially women who were not too well off, because it showed through, I think, in some of the comments he made in his statement. The jury came in. There were about eight witnesses called, two or three merchants who had seen the altercation outside the barbershop. The two people who lived upstairs, uh, a part-time constable who was also a shoe store owner, and the doctor. 
the doctor who had gone and pronounced him dead. And the doctor from the testimony I read, if I had been sitting there, I would have been thoroughly unable to figure out what he was really saying, because much of it was in words that the average person didn't use. And, and it just seemed very convoluted to me. But in any event, after all the witnesses testified for the prosecution, including Hugh Workman, her nine-year-old son. While it seems odd to have a nine-year-old testify in open court, he did provide one of the few statements that came out in Elizabeth's favor. It basically says that while his mother was mean to his father, it was probably because he deserved it, that the father had been mean to her more often than she had been to him. And he did mention that she had hit him once or twice, so that may be what happened. But nowhere in the testimony to this point by prosecution witnesses only, was anything said that could clearly point out that Elizabeth Workman or the barber, they're both, they both at that time were charged with the crime, that Elizabeth Workman or the barber had been the one who killed James Workman. So it came time for Elizabeth's judge, or pardon me, Elizabeth's uh, lawyer to present her case. He presented no case at all. He had no witnesses. He said he would leave it until the closing statements. Then the two lawyers prepared to make their closing statements. And just before they did, at the beginning of the second day of the trial, the judge said, oh, by the way, the barber, I don't think had anything to do with it. We're letting him go right now. So the barber was immediately excused. And the only one still on trial was Elizabeth Workman. The two lawyers had their chance to give closing statements, after which the judge gave his addressed to the jury. And I've read it through several times, and I find several things in it referring to possible extramarital relationship between Elizabeth and the Negro barber, and other things like that, that were not testified to as part of the transcript of the trial. So unless the judge had extra information that didn't appear in the trial transcript, he made up some of the information that he did say. According to McCarthy's research, it appears the judge let his own prejudice on race, gender, and class affect the way he conducted the trial and was biased from the start. Needless to say, there was a lot more to the story than what he was willing to acknowledge. Elizabeth was never called to testify, so nobody will ever know what she said or what she thought or whether she did it except her. So in my mind, that basically leaves enough room for doubt that they could have up with the decision of not guilty. He ended up directing the jury saying, you have really no choice. You have to find her guilty or not guilty. In other words, he didn't say it might be manslaughter or anything like that. It was just one choice or the other. The jury deliberated. I don't know how long for because it doesn't show. They deliberated, came back, and the jury foreman basically said, we find Elizabeth Workman guilty of causing the death of her husband, James, but we strongly recommend mercy because of the information that was presented during the trial. The judge said fine to that, Took a, reached into his sleeve of his uh, judge's gown, pulled out a black cap, put it on his head. And what that signified in British law Whenever they're about to announce a death verdict, the judge will pull out a little black cap and put it on his head. So he pulled it out, put it on his head, 
and said, Elizabeth Workman, the jury's found you guilty. I sent you to hang. Even if Elizabeth did murder her husband in a fit of uncontrolled rage after a bout of abuse, the sentencing was extreme, especially since the jury recommended leniency. But with the banging of the judge's gavel, a bow was tied on the severely unjust trial. Elizabeth's fate was decided. I've read it over several times, and there is nothing in the transcript that says, I saw Elizabeth do it, Elizabeth told me she did it, I know she did it, or anything like that. The man was in very bad shape. He didn't eat enough, and he drank too much. Like every home then, there were cast iron stoves to keep the home warm. It's quite possible that he fell and hit his head a couple of times. It's quite possible that she put him to bed for his own good. One interesting thing that comes out in the transcript is that there were what looks like rope burns around the wrists and the ankles. Perhaps she strapped him into bed and hit him with a broom. I don't know. Perhaps she tied him into bed to keep him from getting out and hurting himself more. I don't know. But to me, to convict somebody of murder and sentence them to death, there should be absolutely no question about that person having done the crime. The existence of alternate explanations alone could and perhaps should have resulted in a merciful verdict. But since the judge had such a definitive stance on the trial, the community Elizabeth Workman lived in took it upon itself to try to convince the courts to spare her life. At that point, I imagine there were some people who thought that this wasn't really correct. Within a week or so, newspaper articles in the Sarnia Canadian Observer, as it was called at the time, newspaper articles pointed out some of the things that were wrong, pointed out that the judge should not have made that decision. And because of this, I think it prompted the beginning of petition. Petitions were starting to be completed, and over the next couple of months, there were probably about 800, 900 signatures affixed to petition. All of them men, as I said before. And these petitions represented some wide, disparate groups. The people on the street, the whole Lambton County Council signed one petition. The whole Sarnia Council signed one petition. Both lawyers, both the prosecutor and the defense lawyer, signed one of the petitions. And there was even a petition brought down from St. Mary's, where they lived for a few years before they came to Sarnia. Every one of those petitions basically said that James mistreated her, that she was a good, upstanding person who worked hard to support herself and her child. And I should mention that the trial transcript was, I think, 73 pages and about 30, less than half of the pages, 30-something pages were trial testimony and so on. The rest were copies of petitions and there were a lot of petitions in there, a lot of signatures signed. And Sarnia at that time might have been five, six thousand men in population, maybe 10 to 12 is the total population. And to get 700 men to sign on behalf of a woman they may or may not have known, they likely didn't know, to me says something that probably generally the people in town 
either figured she didn't do it or figured she should have done it sooner because he deserved it, one or the other. So I'm, I think at that time, the general feeling in the city of Sarnia or the town of Sarnia at the time, Port of Sarnia, actually, Port Sarnia, the general feeling in Port Sarnia at the time was that this woman does not deserve to die. The petitions, by the way, Alexander McKenzie signed the petitions as well. Alexander McKenzie took these petitions down to Quebec City. They were passed on to the Governor General, Governor General Monk. And the way things worked then with petitions for clemency, petition was addressed to the Governor General. The Governor General then would take it to the Justice Minister of the current government. The Justice Minister of the current government happened to be the Prime Minister himself. He had appointed himself as Justice Minister. And he said no. Now, at the time, there were concerns about John A. Macdonald, the prime minister at the time. There were concerns about John A. Macdonald perhaps nipping a little too much liquor and not being properly ready to make decisions such as that. Macdonald very quickly said no. All the efforts to try and get her sentence commuted failed. And on June 19th, the execution was carried out. Elizabeth Workman at that time, and these are the only words anybody's ever recorded that she said. I don't even know for sure if she could read and write. It's not recorded anywhere. But she did clearly state, while she had a noose around her neck, I can only hope that what I've been going through will serve as a warning to all wives who have drunken husbands and to all husbands who have drunken wives. That sounds to me like, a, if not writing literate, certainly a literate, understanding, reasonable woman. And unfortunately, she died on that day. That was on June 19th of 1873, a little over 148 years ago. Although it's been over 148 years, it's still a black spot on Sarnia's judicial history. McCarthy hopes that by bringing awareness to the case, he can still get her commuted posthumously and finally achieve the correct verdict. Elizabeth Workman is interesting in that she is the only person executed, the only woman executed in Canada after a jury recommended mercy. In total, there have been 17 women executed in Canada, uh, 11 of them since Confederation. And all, almost all of them, I think, with exception of two or three of them, were executed for killing husbands. The same reason that Elizabeth Workman was executed. So there could be an avenue for recognizing that Elizabeth Workman should not have been executed. And of commuting her sentence posthumously to time spent in jail prior to her death. And the fact, if we were to look at all of the women who had been executed in Canada, have been sentenced to execution, since Confederation, 58 women have been convicted of a capital offense. With 33 of them, mercy was recommended, including the one with Elizabeth. 32 of them had their sentence commuted. With eight of them, there were no recommendations. They were commuted. In 17 of the cases, the judge or jury strongly said, don't show this person any mercy. 
seven of those were commuted. So there are only 11 women that have been executed since Confederation, and only one of them, the jury had recommended mercy. It appears to me that somehow something went wrong with the system, whether it be political, McDonald versus Alexander McKenzie, or whether it be something else, I'm not sure. But it would do us well to consider looking into this case officially and trying to determine if something could be done to recognize the fact that it might have been a wrong back then. And in what could be seen as a final indignity visited upon Elizabeth Workman, she wasn't even given a proper burial. The other thing, though, is that three people died in the Lambton courthouse in jail. Three were executed. The other two, their bodies were taken out and buried somewhere else. Her body was dropped from the scaffold down into a hole that was dug underneath. And when she went to her death, she had a handful of white flowers in her hand. And when the minister looked down after, all he saw was the body lying down there in a non-consecrated piece of ground. And it's still there to our knowledge, might be under the parking lot behind the restaurant that's on that location now. So not only did she get executed, perhaps unjustly, but she also now, or since then, for a long time now, has lain in unconsecrated ground. Nobody knows where she is. Unlike today, battered woman syndrome and other mental health disorders resulting from domestic abuse wasn't taken seriously at the time and weren't accepted as a defense in the court of law. The acceptance of those defenses later became important parts of our justice system. One of the things that's important about it today, even, is the whole issue of abuse of not just women, but of men and of children as well. We have a lot of bullying, anti-bullying initiatives now. We have in many communities homes that are devoted to being places of safety for people who are abused within a relationship. History also shows that where there is abuse, either the idea of receiving the abuse and not reacting to it or the idea of presenting the abuse, that this can be ingrained into somebody and will carry on into adulthood and then will likely carry on with their children and their children and their children. So in many cases where there is abuse, It's because of generations of abuse that have been allowed to have become a way of life for some people. And if through bringing her case into the light, which I think was a case of abuse, we can help to prevent any of that, then that's good. Whether Elizabeth's story becomes legally rectified or not, it's important to acknowledge that she was failed by the system. She should not have been executed, and it was clear everyone knew just as much at the time. She died in 1873 on June 19th. A year and a half from now will be 150 years deceased. And it would be good by that time to have somebody speak out on her behalf and to try and get the sentence commuted to time spent in jail before she died. This episode of the 519 Podcast was produced by Craig Needles and Patrick Magermans. It was hosted by Haley Chang. 
The 519 Podcast is a presentation of Blackburn Media.